morning everyone. The scripture reading for today is John chapter 11 verses 55 through chapter 12 verse 18. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure lard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was attending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold to 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had made the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus said, therefore, let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned of, he was there and came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel <clears throat> that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had been done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. And then we're going to move over to Luke chapter 19 verses 41 through 44. And when he approached, he, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Amen. With respect to Palm Sunday, we're going to look today at a piece of scripture that Bible commentators call the triumphal entry. It's the part of scripture that happens during Passion Week as Jesus returns to Jerusalem right before Passover and is welcomed by the people there as the coming king. It's a period of time that our gospel writers spent a lot of ink explaining. To put this in perspective, in the four gospels there is 89 chapters. 85 of those chapters cover the last three years of Jesus' life and 29 of those chapters cover the last week from this point in the story on forward. In order to appreciate this conversation and some of the dynamics that are happening in the community, you have to understand something of the Jewish feelings towards Rome during this time. Who Rome was the uh, nation that ruled over Israel. Although Israel had returned from exile in Babylon hundreds of years earlier, as partially documented in our teaching in Nehemiah, the golden age that was predicted by the prophets of Israel had not yet materialized. In 63 BC, Roman legions under Pompey would, uh, had put an end to the independent Jewish state, conquering Israel and uh, disposing of the king. Instead, Israel labored under the oppressive military dictatorship of a pagan nation. We pick up now in John chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus 
and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come to the feast or not come at all? My first point in the scripture today is that the unrest going on with Rome made people hungry for God. Unrest makes, can make people hungry for God. Israel at this time was a cauldron of unrest. They could have been placed under curfews. They were taxed against their will. They had regulations on their public and some of their religious meetings, and they had secular rulers ruling over them. There's, uh, like much of human history, the Jews lived as an people under oppression, and they yearned for this messianic deliverer that had been promised throughout scripture and that they would hope come once and for all to restore Israel and establish God's kingdom in the land. Long ago, there was a psalm that was written about this kind of hunger. In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, David writes, as, my, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. See, God is the giver of all good things, but the best thing that he ever gave was himself. It seems throughout much of history that when there's a sense of uncertainty or even oppression, that when people can't get things that are good to replace God, they can get even more of a thirst for that thing which is the best thing, which is the Lord himself. Maybe you've even heard a saying about um, cultivating a, th a thirst in people, something that goes along the lines of, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink. And while that's true, there is another saying that goes along with that one that says, you can lead a horse to water and you can't make it drink, but you can salt its oats. The salt in the oats, of course, would make the horse thirsty and then the thirsty horse would decide to drink. There's a similar logic to the gospel that you can't make people come to accept the Lord as their savior but surely you can help share that the hope that the gospel carries in light of the brokenness in our world. We can share the gospel as bringing hope to the hopeless. And in this case, that hopelessness to Israel was an oppressive regime which made Israel thirsty. They were probably made even more thirsty by a religious establishment that was almost as brutal as the Roman Empire. Yet throughout all that, God makes a way. Goes on in verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, where Jesus was, that they should let them know so they may arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here was a dinner given in Jesus' honor. Mary I'm sorry, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he used to help himself to what was put in the money bag. Jesus replied to him, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. 
You will always have the poor amongst you, but you will not always have me. It's interesting that this triumphal entry was precursed by Jesus' own burial preparations. When you think of the word triumphant in the religious sense, you often don't think of it as intertwined with burial preparations. My second point from the scripture is that victory is preceded by surrender. Victory, in this case, was preceded by surrender. We see this in scripture that oftentimes before a victory, and this is true in life, that there's sometimes a loss or a surrender before the victory. A friend of mine at this church even told me a story recently about a job he got fired from that led him a different direction in life, and that loss actually set him up for even greater success in the near future. Life is kind of like that sometimes. An ebb comes before a flow, a loss comes before an opportunity, a crisis comes before a victory. A.W. Tozer said it like this, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress, is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. See, the difference between a loss in life and a life lesson sometimes comes down to what you do with that. There's going to be trials, but those trials can ultimately help prepare us for a greater destiny. Luke 9, verses 23 and 24 says, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, knowing that there's going to be pain or loss or suffering in life doesn't necessarily we need, mean we need to self-flagellate. There's enough pain and suffering throughout life that Scripture is not suggesting to hurt yourself in light of that. In fact, I think it's a good policy to be flexible, to take what life throws at you, but remember to duck from time to time. If there's something particularly unpleasant and duckable that's headed your way, it's okay to move out of the way. But always keep your attitude as positive as you can manage. Even in the desert, the sun eventually sets and the heat drops off a little bit. Verse 9, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well on account of him and many of the Jews who were going over to Jesus and believing in him. That strikes me as amazing that the chief priests of the day the rulers of the kingdom, when they didn't have Roman oppression, would want to somehow kill, the G- kill Jesus, who was seen as the coming Messiah, and not only Jesus, but his friends as well. I mean, just to make a little social commentary on that, we're in the process of a pastoral search right now, but any of that activity would be immediate grounds for disqualification. 
Jesus is coming as king to Jerusalem. It goes on in verse 12 to say that the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. For as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand this, but only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things that had been written about him and these things that had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. It's interesting that Jesus chose to ride on a colt instead of walk. It would be tradition that the pilgrims coming to the Passover feast would normally come by foot. And Jesus is alone in riding here as his disciples around him walk. Why is it important he came on that colt? Well, as we just read from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it says in that scripture, Behold, your king is coming. It goes on to say he is humble and mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That verse goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, a war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He, the Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is deliberative deliberately and provocatively came it claiming to be the king of Israel who will reestablish the throne of David. He purposely sought out that colt to ride into town based on his awareness of being the Messiah and identified himself on purpose with those verses predicted by Messiah. We see around him that people are worshiping and my third point today is that the people worship even amidst the trials. The people worship even amidst the trials, potentially even knowing that the chief priests might have evil plans for him, surely knowing that if he's seen as leading a rebellion, Rome might try to put him to death. But the people didn't miss this moment. They behaved as if this were the coming king. In fact, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings verse 9, 13, we see the behavior of laying coats down in front of a coming king when it says, after Jehu was appointed the king in Israel, then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under his bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Additionally, the people, perhaps remembering how Bartimaeus back in Jericho called out to Jesus, the people in this verse called out Hosanna, God save us. You see, the crowd thought at last, at last, God's anointed king has come. So here's this picture of Jesus coming into town, the miraculous teacher from Nazareth who they imagined would cast out the pagan rulers of Israel, clean out the priesthood, establish God's true kingdom, not centered in Rome, but in Jerusalem. And then maybe even thinking, now is the day when heaven starts. Life is going to be glorious. It's interesting what Jesus does next, though. We pick up in uh, Luke verse 41 where it says, When he draw near, he saw the city 
and he wept over it, saying, What would you do even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes? For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon the other because you did not know the time of your visitation. In Mark 11, 11 it goes on and it says, He entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. When he had looked around at everything, it was already late and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What does he do? First day, he did nothing. Jesus showed up in town with a band full of people around him proclaiming Hosanna, a potential for a great show-off, maybe a, a stirring speech in the temple, maybe an uprising against this oppressive regime. And he cried and he left. Talk about an anticlimactic moment. He just turns around and left. See, Jesus' procession as he got closer to Jerusalem probably then just melted into the Passover crowd. What a disappointment for those who hailed his entry. What kind of Messiah is this? What sort of deliverer is this? And in the ensuing days, Jesus did cleanse the temple, but he didn't raise a finger against the Romans. Instead, he even said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And it turned out the people didn't want a king like that. My fourth point is that Jesus is not beholden to our expectations. He's not beholden to our expectations. See, in our Christian lives, we all experience situations where God does not fulfill our expectations. Perhaps he doesn't bring that perfect marriage partner, or you find that the marriage you're in hasn't lived up to your expectations. Maybe you've been passed over for a promotion or a position that you really deserved, or maybe illness or tragedy has struck your life in an unexpected way. The temptations in these situations sometimes can be to bail out, to think that the faith that Christianity teaches isn't true or isn't going to give you what you want and to go do things your own way. Maybe instead you go to try to marry a non-Christian who's in love with you, or you file for divorce. You give up on the church because, well, let's face it, people are difficult. You grow resentful or bitter over missed opportunities, or you give up confidence in God's love for you and no longer trust him. As a pastor, I've seen these and all sorts of things happen again and again in the lives of Christians in the churches that I've been at. When God doesn't live up to our expectations, there's that temptation. But we can't jettison God to do things the way that we think they should be done or grow resentful because he hasn't given us the things that we think we want. People have this expectation of Jesus beyond the spiritual. It's like, we want Jesus and fill in the blank. I want Jesus and the white picket fence and the perfect house. I want Jesus and the perfect marriage. I want Jesus and the best job and travel plans that I can possibly think up. 
It's okay to want nice things, but when they overcome your love for God, the Bible has a word for those things. It calls them idolatry. And it seems that some of these people in Israel wanted their social needs met maybe more than they wanted salvation. Jesus told a story like that about Lazarus and the rich man. It starts out like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered in sores and longing to eat whatever fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his wounds. Just from reading the introduction to that story, you'd think the rich man was the lucky one. But as we know from the rest of the story, that that rich man's riches didn't save him. So what do we do in light of all this? In understanding that Jesus came both with a heart for the social gospel, for wanting to do good unto others and wanting to bless the poor and wanting to give good things to his people, but he also came wanting to share with us the most important lesson that those things aren't primacy in our spiritual lives. There's a few things we can do. Number one is we can stay hungry for God. We can stay hungry for God. We, when you start to look to Jesus first to meet your needs, he starts to show up for you in ways that you didn't imagine before. See, Jesus calls on our hearts to look to him for a fuller and fuller sense of joy. And when we find that sense of joy in God, in a pure and a perfect way that only God can have for your life, we'll look less, we'll look elsewhere even less. Maybe you've heard what the acronym JOY stands for. Um, it stands for Jesus, others, and yourself. And it, although it's kind of a, a cute way to think about what the word joy means, there's truth in that. You, we should prioritize in life Jesus, others, and ourself. Unfortunately, I think in our culture there's this pressure to, instead of having joy, to have yoj and put yourself, others, and Jesus in that order instead of let for him to be the source of all good things in our life. The next thing we can do is we can worship him in the midst of our trials. We can't be like the people in Jerusalem who hailed Christ as their king as long as he fit their image of what a king should be. We'll see that later in scripture, when he starts to not fulfill what they feel he should give them, they actually turn on him and he'll be crucified. Let us rather acknowledge him as truly our king, our Lord, our savior, and receive from his hand what he has for us. Another thing we should do is not to make God beholden to our expectations. Not to make God beholden to our expectations. He's in charge even in these times of social unrest. Let him be Lord over your soul, over your life, over your mind, and over what you expect him to give you. He has no obligation to live up to your expectations for him. If he chooses a life of suffering and hardship, well, he did choose that for some of his most beloved friends. But yet he's still Lord. And he promises to redeem you in heaven forever. Some of us 
just feel like when Christ um, doesn't meet our expectations, that it's okay, we can go off and try to make those things happen on our own. But I would encourage you today to look at Jesus as the disciple above his master, the master above the disciple, and remember that Jesus chose the road to Golgotha, and that if you're called to tread on that same path, that's his perspective. The last thing we can do is we can give in and surrender to him. We saw in the beginning of the passage that Jesus started off this week in this passage by surrendering himself to death, to being anointed in perfume on behalf of an upcoming burial. Trust him to build where you can't. Rick Warren put it this way, you cannot fulfill God's purposes in your life while focusing on your own plans. He can fix what you can't heal. He can transform what you can't touch. And he can love you beyond what you can ever even imagine. In all of this, church, I pray with you that during this time of many of us feeling isolated to, to being alone in our homes and or uh, alone with family in our homes when quarters can be tight, social expression and activity can be low, church, be in prayer. God does things in times of difficulty and in times when society is, is looking for purpose and looking for enlightenment. And this time is a time like that. Remember, he can do good things beyond what you can even imagine. And he's promised to you, as his disciples, good things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your provision during these trials. We ask for protection over your health, your encouragement through the unknown, uh, for new insights on how to love others, Lord. Lord, we ask you to prepare our hearts during this season as we come into a time where we celebrate your sacrifice for us. Uh, please be present with us this season. Help us to connect digitally over the phone or in spirit via prayer. And Lord, uh, give us a heart for you this Easter season in a powerful way, more powerful than we've ever had before. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.